This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? <laughs> uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for these super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there <laughs> is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 118. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, man. Buiti benafi y bienvenidos, bitches. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? I said, no, 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 no. Wait. Uh, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294, and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media, the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Tanya Shantez Thomas, a woman who committed familicide. So, uh, not a serial killer, but a case that's unusual for a few reasons that we'll get into and worthy of discussion. But we did want to warn you that uh, it, it is familicide and there are some children that are murdered. Yes. So yes. it could be very disturbing. And I also wanted to say that this story was suggested to us by a listener, Kamisha G. Kamisha G is also, I believe, one of our patrons. Thank you so much. Uh, so before we get into it, how are you doing? I'm okay. I've been uh, super busy, so just trying to keep my head above water. And I think you have been too. Oh my god, I have been <laughs> up so like up till midnight working on oh my god. the show, working on my job. You know, we got a lot of blessings with the show. I also got a lot of blessings with my nine to five and stuff. And so uh, it just means there's a little bit of a transition period, right? And getting used to the new. The new stuff, the extra yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I've, I'm exhausted no. and I look it. Um, but uh, I will say it's, it has been a long week. Uh, yeah. But the good news is Derek Chauvin is guilty of all yeah. charges. <laughs> Woo! Just, justice, accountability, and who knows what's next. I don't want to get my black ass hopes up, but I'm feeling pretty pretty good yeah um yeah and uh i'm still processing but uh yeah. it is good news yeah so we're recording on april 20th the verdict was just read today so we're yeah. still kind of processing absolutely but <laughs> happy 420 for those of you who are processing the right <laughs> way am i right <laughs> so uh yeah so well um let's take a second to mosey on over to our mailbag and get into some listener letters well hello <sighs> thank you angels What's in the bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Cece and Nadine for your letters. They were uh, really nice to read. So thank you so much. Hell yeah. Thank you for getting at us. Your words were so sweet. <laughs> yeah, 
thank you. And shout out to O'Bruman on Instagram who slid into our DMs to let us know that we got it right as far as mentioning the nicknames in Thai culture. And uh, she said her sister's nickname is Mint. Yeah, she just wanted to let us know we got it right. Uh, shout out to O'Bruman on IG. She is, uh, we talk a lot on Instagram and she's she's amazing. Um, and it was really cool for her to sort of just so you guys know, you did it right. Because <laughs> we, we were like, awesome. well, I don't know if we're pronouncing it, it is right. Like we did the real, you know, we're just here. And uh, so it feels good when, you know, we get a little nod. So we really yeah. appreciate that. And that is definitely worthy of super horns. And we also got some new patrons and Patreons. Um, so it might seem like we're like, a little bit behind um, and we're not. I'm just trying not to uh, I, I know that um, I want to make sure I'm not missing people but I also want to make sure that um, I don't do too many in one episode right that's, right, that's right. too many tunes yeah. um, so uh, if you if you sign up in the last you know couple weeks as a, as a patron or Patreon just hang on your shout outs are coming I promise. Okay. So uh, we got Hannah F Latia S Katie S Deb and Tara. So here goes. Andale, andale, Hana, ia, ia, oh, oh, what's poppin' tonight? Andale, andale, Hana, ia, ia, oh, oh, what's poppin' tonight? <laughs> Thank you, boo. So, Latia, this is for you. Stop, drop, shut them down, open up shop. Oh, no, that's a Latia roll. <laughs> <laughs> in the name of DMX. Amen. Uh, and then Kathy, this is for you. Kathy, sh- shut your mouth. Silence when I spit it out. In your face. Open your mouth. Give you a taste. Kathy. <laughs> uh, I hope you like that. And then this one is for <laughs> this one is for uh, Tara. Here is your shout out. This how Tara do it. It's Friday night and I feel all right. The murder scenes on the west side. This how Tara do it. This how Tara do it. And uh, this last one is for Deb. Here you go. Staring at the Deb H before you open up the dirty window. Let the sun illuminate the words that you cannot find. Reaching for true come in the distance. So close you don't want to taste it. Release your inhibitions. Feel fruit loops on your lips. No one else can feel it for you. Only you can let it in. Uh, sorry, I got way <laughs> too carried away with that one. And I apologize, but I really hope you all loved your tunes. And I thank you so fucking much for your support. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Woo! Uh, I was tapping my toes and everything on that one. Uh- <laughs> on the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Um, all right. Well, um, Beth, remind us who our subject is today. Today we're talking about Tanya Shantez Thomas, a woman who killed her four children and then she killed herself. So now we're going to get into some stats. Spr- stats. Ooh, tough some stats. Um, so Tanya Shantez Thomas was born on March 2nd, 1979. Um, she was a single black mother in America. Very challenging. And uh, one day on May 15, 2012, Tanya killed her four children and then killed herself with a gun. Uh, her children, uh, there are four of them, as we said, and their names are, rest in, by the way, rest in power, young kings and young queens. Um, Jax Johnson, 15. Joel Johnson, 12. Pebbles Johnson, 17. And Jaslyn Johnson, 13. Uh, and I wanted to share some stats about gun deaths in the U.S. You know, interesting thing. The United States, I think, is um, issuing travel advisories for Americans <laughs> or, or, or there's something going on with the U.S. saying, like, be careful when you travel. But nobody is trying to fuck with America and, like, come here and visit us. People are getting shot everywhere all the time there's yeah. gazillions of guns so let me just break it down for you guns in the united states uh the US, u.s has a population of about 325 million there are 394 million firearms oh in civilian God. possession per the small arms survey in 2017 that's ridiculous yeah their survey revealed that there were only 1 million registered oh, firearms Jesus and Christ. the rest are unregistered Jesus. Uh, yep gun ownership are you are you planning your trip? <laughs> International <laughs> listeners, <laughs> get yeah, at us. <laughs> actually, actually uh, the people in Canada, some of my sister's friends are like, uh, we're scared to go there. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, it is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so gun ownership rose a lot during the pandemic. So then, and so did the number of shootings in 2018. According to the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, there were 38,000 deaths by firearm. 24,000 of those were from suicide, and the other 14,000 were homicides. In 2010, which is closer to uh, a closer model because of I picked because of the setting of the story, there were 19,000 firearm-related suicides and 11,000 firearm-related homicides that year. Another part of the conversation has to do with substance use plus violence um, in these um, gun deaths, um, which is part of our story as well. Um, Mass shootings are covered by the media a lot and suicide is not. But the numbers seem like they warrant more coverage than they're getting because the number is so substantial. Um, Also, fun fact, 
police in America kill on average of 1,100 people per year. Um, So they also contribute to the gun, the gun um, homicide rate. Um, So all I'm saying is come to the U.S. It's super lit and you'll probably regret it afterwards. Uh, so, uh, this is a case of familicide and, or fam- family annihilation, and the circumstances are unusual. Um, that uh, most family annihilators are men. Tanya Thomas is not; she's a female. And when familicide is committed by women, the choice of weapon is usually not a gun. And in most cases, um, the children are very young, right? Not able to to fight back. So, um, we are going to get into the story. We'll be sure to um, give you guys a trigger warning when it comes to um, the uh, most disturbing parts. Um, So we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. So the family lived in Port St. John in Florida, which is about 15 miles west of Cape Canaveral. And the whole area is known as the, quote, Space Coast, which I thought was funny because um, of the cartoon Space Ghost. (laughs) <laughs> okay, uh, you know, not familiar. Oh, you never heard of Space Ghost? Nope. Okay. I was nope. Uh, but it's a car. Is is a cartoon about a ghost in space? Uh, I I actually never really watched it. I just remember <laughs> it from the Cartoon Channel. And, Interesting. Uh, it was a comedy. So, but I cool. I wonder if they. They named it after the Space Coast. Oh, interesting. <laughs> it sounds so, so similar. It does. <laughs> I, you know, I my head went to, you know, the hip hop battle between East Coast, West Coast and the Third Coast. The Space Coast? <laughs> and now the Space Coast is part of the rap beef against all the other coasts. What are we going to do? Help us source awards. <laughs> so obviously it's called the Space Coast because of the home of NASA's Kennedy Space Center there. And the space shuttle launches, so all that stuff. Ah, yes. Port St. John is an unincorporated residential area located between Cocoa and Titusville in North Brevard County, located along the Atlantic coast of central Florida. Ooh. So uh, the population of Port St. John in 2010 was 12,267, approximately 80% of which was white and 5% of which was black. This tiny town received national attention after this case. The median income for a family was 47,000 and the median income for women was 26,000. 4.7% of families and 6.6% of the population were below the poverty line. Port St. John is on indigenous land inhabited by people who arrived in Florida more than 12 millennia ago. It was the home of the Temucua and Ais before the Seminole, who were relative newcomers. Uh, Mm. The Spanish arrived in Florida in the early 1500s when Catholic missions were established to convert indigenous people to Christianity. Uh, just uh, that colonialism makes me so makes my blood boil. They were doing fine with their own religious practices and yeah. beliefs. Um, but you know, Catholicism and Christianity from the beginning of time have been um instrumental in the colonization, colonization and yeah. um, white uh, supremacy um uh, around the world and yeah. um 
it's just hard to ignore. Also complicated to talk about, but uh, there you have it. Uh, So up through the 18th century, the area that is now Brevard County was very remote and inaccessible. The area was considered uninhabitable due to the dangerous animals like alligators and panthers, plus malaria-bearing mosquitoes (laughs) and hostile indigenous people. All right, relax. As a result, the only Europeans to come to this area during this time period were pirates who would hide in the then remote waters off the coast of Florida. During the 1700s, the native tribes throughout the southeastern United States were severely oppressed by white settlers, obviously. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Many were forced into slavery and their land was taken away and their homes destroyed. Uh, It's pretty uh, it's pretty disgusting. Also, when they would remove indigenous people from land, they would basically just give it away to any immigrant or white person who um, was able to get there to just giving away this land for yeah. free, but it, yeah. but it wasn't theirs. Um, give me my land. Give me the, give the land back, y'all. Give it back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so to escape, some fled south, landing in central Florida. Once their tribes merged into what became known as Seminoles, it is thought that the name Seminole comes from the Spanish word cimarron, the rough translation meaning wild runaway. During the next century, many escaped enslaved people found refuge among the Seminoles. Some, known as Black Seminoles, stayed with the tribes permanently. But the white leaders of the United States were not happy to see enslaved people being protected by and assimilated into Native American tribes. So in 1817, Andrew Jackson launched the first of three wars against the Seminoles. Boy, that Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he makes you me so mad. Oh, I mean, I get so angry when I have to pay with a $20 bill. Ugh, get it out of here. <laughs> Peace did not come until 1842 when an ar- agreement uh, said several hundred members of the tribe could remain in Florida. In 1845, Florida became the 27th state of the Union. The first permanent settlement in present-day Brevard County was established near Cape Canaveral in 1848. Today, only 0.3%—0.3% of Florida residents are Native American. And that's that's, that's really shameful. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Cut to the end of the Civil War and Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation that freed the enslaved people. But like in Texas, the news didn't arrive in Florida until two years later. Mm. And then uh, you got all these free people, but no housing, no jobs and no resources. So many just left, often in search of their lost, read sold yeah. relatives. Um, some ended up in Cuba or the Bahamas. Mm. Uh, some of the characteristics of slavery, such as an inability to leave a disagreeable situation, continued under sharecropping, convict leasing, and vagrancy laws. In the 20th and 21st centuries, conditions approximating slavery are found among marginal immigrant populations, especially migrant farm workers and involuntary sex workers. The first major land boom in Florida began in the 1920s after the end of World War One, when people flooded into the state, both tourists from northern winters and new full-time residents, and the land prices jumped. On July 11, 1926, James Clark, a chauffeur for a traveling salesman, was accused of rape by a white girl, which is, you already know where this is going. He was arrested, but the chief of police turned him over to a mob. A noose was placed around his neck. He was dragged over a tree limb and shot with a shotgun. 
No attempt was made to determine who murdered Clark. This was the last known lynching in Brevard County. The street near the site of the lynching was named Lynching Tree Drive. Uh, does not sound pleasant. No. Until 1980, it had this name. <laughs> when the Black community petitioned the city council to change the name, which was then changed to Legendary Lane. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at the history of lynching in America from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s. Um, and uh, Ida, when Ida B. Wells was writing about um, lynching in America, she was reporting on like one to three lynchings a week. It, they were wow. almost happening every other day. And wow. I think that it's kind of interesting to look at where we are today. Right. With police shootings. Yeah. Um, or just shootings uh, in by general. Americans in, yeah. in general. Um, so just interesting. Americans are nuts. I <laughs> am telling you, I heard I heard Neil Brennan say today, um, what what's worse, um, being a black person who can get killed by police or being an American who can get killed by an American. Insensitive yeah. joke might need some working out. Sure. But I thought it was an interesting statement. Take. Yeah. 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 Uh, so as in the rest of the state and most of the South, African-Americans in the country were largely disenfranchised or uh, and oppressed by Jim Crow conditions. Jim Crow laws were state and local laws that enforced racial segregation. It was basically American apartheid in the southern United States. Jim Crow is said to have been a minstrel character with a black face performed by some white guy. He does have a name, but I don't care what it is to make fun of black people. And uh, welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Whether it was a racist white guy in blackface or one of the crows from Dumbo, Jim Crow <laughs> is still not completely behind us. Uh, Jim Crow, Crow laws included such nonsense as segregated bathrooms and entrances, laws against interracial dating and marriage. Uh, black people and white people couldn't even play checkers together. Uh, <laughs> black people That's couldn't stupid. serve on juries. If a white person was walking on the sidewalk, you had to get off as a black person and you couldn't look white people in the eyes uh so and i i heard a wild story chris rock told about his mom who had to go to the dentist but white dentists wouldn't treat black people so she had to go to the vet instead to oh get a tooth God. removed Jesus just ridiculous Christ. so yeah. anyway i'll stop but just so you know <laughs> it sucks <laughs> yeah yeah in the 1930s harry t moore a civil rights leader and teacher founded the brevard county NAACP and later became its president after the Supreme Court ruled in 1944 that white primaries were unconstitutional, he conducted voter registration drives and succeeded in registering 31% of black voters in Florida. Wow. Yeah, which was a higher percentage than in any other southern state. For this, both he and his wife were fired from their teaching jobs in 1946 as economic blackmail because of their activism. Man, for doing the right thing. Yeah. Right. You know, what's interesting, too, about these people who were alive in the 40s, 50s and 60s who were, you know, in photos, um, w photos of lynchings or photos of, um, you know, them protesting um, the uh, desegregation of schools. Those people scream. You, you've seen the yeah. images, right? Like yeah. those people are not all dead. Yeah, right? right. And they have children and grandchildren. And what happens to those sentiments? I don't know, but I am wondering. Uh, so then on Christmas night, 1951, a bomb exploded under their home, fatally 
injuring both of them. The murders were racially motivated and believed to be committed by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Four separate investigations were conducted, four, including the first by the FBI in 1951 to 1952, and the last in 2005 by the state, and no one was prosecuted? Come on, you guys. Wow. Okay. In the late 1950s, the government opened the Long Range Proving Ground. This later became the Kennedy Space Center. This helped stimulate development in the county. Brevard, which had once been considered a backwoods area of Florida, now attracted more educated workers and scientists, and what had once been a primarily low-tech farmer-fisherman economy was transformed into a high-tech engineering and computer economy. Cool. Yeah. In 1961, John F. Kennedy was sworn in as the new president, promising to reach for a, quote, new frontier. There was a sense of excitement that focused on the nation's space agency, which was on the verge of Launching the first astronauts into space. But there was also increasing unrest among those who were being left behind because of their race. When Julius Montgomery began to work at Cape Canaveral as an electronics technician in 1956, he was the first black person to serve there in a role other than janitor. Wow. During Montgomery's first day on the job, most of his all-white coworkers refused to shake his hand or even speak to him. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Even today, I wouldn't be surprised that happening Um it hasn't happened to me in the workplace. Like, are you a cleaning lady? Do you work here? Oh, but uh, like uh, Maria Hinojosa, the the NPR uh, journalist woman, she was in maybe the 80s, 70s, 80s, hired at NPR. And she was the first Latina woman to get hired there who wasn't the cleaning lady. Right. right. So um, I just think it's really there's something to be said about being the first um, to serve in a role, um, uh, you know, trailblazing. Yeah. 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 So President Kennedy took steps to create more inclusive job opportunities as part of the buildup for the Apollo Lunar Landing Program. Knowing that NASA was planning to hire approximately 200,000 people in southern states, recruiters were asked to travel around the country trying to persuade African-American scientists and engineers to work in the space program. That is really cool. I had no idea. Wow. But. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Once hired, the challenge was then finding a place for them to live. Segregated apartments and hotels were not available to black people in Brevard County. So at first, families in Huntsville's African-American community had to open their homes to them so they could have a place to live. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Gosh, just imagine how, how challenging that must yeah. have been, right? So in July of 2014, Kennedy Space Center's director, Bob Cabana, said, quote, it's really important that we take time to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act, end quote. While efforts in the mid-1960s was a start, Cabana noted that initially progress was slow. And boy, oh boy, if today's verdict <laughs> against Derek Chauvin is any side, yes, progress it is was very, very slow. slow. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I should also say that, you know, the slow progress is also in the meantime hurting a lot of people. Yeah. So um, yeah. can we speed it up, please? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> 
So Bob Cabana said, quote, I look back at the Apollo program and there was something like seven black employees working at the Kennedy Space Center. It was an unbelievably small number. While we're doing a lot better, we can always provide improved opportunities for minority employment, unquote. One of the steps to include minorities in the most uh, visible area uh, or minorities, I'll get to it later, uh, not a word I like to use, um, underserved, marginalized or other peoples or people of color in the most visible area of space exploration was selection of those who would travel there. America's first black astronaut was U.S. Air Force pilot Robert Lawrence, who was selected in 1967 to fly aboard the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. So cool. The military program, which was canceled in 1969, involved a small single-use space station in which crews would launch and land in an advanced Gemini spacecraft. Unfortunately, six months after his selection, Lawrence was killed in a training accident. Oh, no. Yeah. Following Apollo Skylab and the Apollo Soyuz test project, NASA began gearing up for the space shuttle program and, in 1978, announced the selection of 35 of the most diverse group of astronauts to date. In addition to a mix of pilots and mission specialists, the group included the first women and mm, minorities, uh, you know, uh, marginalized or other people. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to Culture Corner. The word minority, as you can see, I have a very difficult time saying it uh, because it is a way that we've generally labeled or identified people who numbers wise, right, are in the minority. But at this stage, that's not really accurate. And I heard one black woman say on a podcast, I'm not a minority anything. Uh, there's nothing minor itty about me. <laughs> uh, so, and Forbes, I, I, re, I saw a Forbes article that's in 2020 and then said that they were going to stop using the term altogether um, and check the receipts, right? There are more BIPOC people in the world and in the United States. So using the term to describe black and brown communities is reductive when the collective is enormous and also not a monolith. So it might force people to do a little work to contextualize. But anyway, that's a different conversation. There are mixed ideas on alternatives, on what verbiage to use so you don't end up putting your foot in your mouth. Right. Um, I say start with what you know. And if you don't know, ask, right? I like to use words like marginalized people, underrepresented people. These are people who exist, but the oppression is from the outside, right? Nobody chooses to be in a minority. Um, nobody uh, is uh, intentionally marginalized. That's something that's done to them. Um, so anyway, those are the words that I use. And I, I think the most important part is uh, people. Minority has d doesn't even sound like a person. that you takes away your personhood. Uh, and it, it's it's language. You're not going to go to jail for calling somebody a minority. <laughs> but, you know, you can certainly give yourself a pat on the back for being a better human. So. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry, I'll shut up. <laughs> That's OK. I, I never even thought about that before as being offensive because I don't know, just never thought about it. Yeah, we're all learning all the time. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't think of it either until I heard uh, somebody like an auntie or, or somebody say that. And I was like, I'm not minor. I'm a person. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yes, women are also sometimes uh, put in the minority. Right, but uh, check category. the receipts. Yeah. 51% of the population? Bitch, it's get out not, of here. not a minority. Yeah. But um, yeah, just, just never really thought about it, I guess. 
Yeah. If somebody tries to call women a minority, you you just you step up, Beth. You... I'll, I'll say marginalized. I like that. Yeah. There you marginalized go. Marginalized people. Yeah, there you go. And we might slip up. We might still say minority and forget that it bothers me. You know what I mean? Yeah, if I slip up, I apologize. Yeah. Let's just keep it moving and keep trying to be better. Here we go. All right. Guy Bluford became the first African-American to fly in space in 1983. In 1989, Fred Gregory became the first African-American to command a space flight. Wow. Ellison Onizuka was the first Asian-American astronaut. Sally Ride became the first American woman in space. And Kathy Sullivan, the first American woman to walk in space. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, So by 2007, hiring at Kennedy increased to 23% marginalized people. Today, those people make up 27.2% of just over 2,000 NASA civil service employees at the Kennedy Space Center, which is progress. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So now we're going to get into Tanya Thomas's early life. What do you got, Beth? Tanya Chantez Thomas was born March 2nd, 1979. 
from what we've read, Tanya Thomas was abused and or neglected as a child, but we couldn't find any specifics about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's all we know. She later found herself trapped in a cycle of domestic violence with her partner, Joe Johnson. Tanya had four children with Joe Johnson, but they never married. Tanya must have been about 16 when she had her first child, Pebbles. And then in 2000, the children witnessed their father yell at Tanya for not making dinner. Then he punched and kicked her, knocking her into a wall. Not cool. Not at all. For not making dinner. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's fucked up. Uh, And... uh, You know, domestic violence is really fucked up. It's another fucked up thing about America. Yeah, Uh, one more thing. Yeah. (laughs) People are always like, why why didn't the woman leave? Why didn't she think about her children and keeping them safe and getting them out of that place? But is anybody going to ask the abuser, like, why Why don't you stop? He won't stop abusing. Yeah. Uh, So... Johnson was arrested and charged with domestic violence battery. Tanya and the children went into a shelter but returned to the house nearly a month later, violating a court order. The father tried to sneak out of the bedroom window on a subsequent visit by police, and Mm. Thomas instructed the children to lie about living with their father again. Still, according to records, one of the girls told police her father spent many nights at the house. Also, uh, the stat goes it takes women... um, like seven like or eight seven times, times to yeah. try to, to leave. and I, I shouldn't yeah. just characterize it as women. It p- people who are in domestic violence situations to leave takes uh, is is very difficult and takes it's not easy. It's and it's complicated. It's not as easy as just why don't you just leave? Exactly, absolutely not. And um, another devastating thing about domestic violence is that people who are trapped in it are also likely to be killed by their abuser, which in a world with millions of guns is very dangerous and scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The children were then removed from the parents' care, but a judge ruled they could return roughly a month later despite the Department of Children and Family, or DCF, objections. Thomas was given temporary custody under DCF supervision. The parents agreed to work with a caseworker, and an investigator wrote that, quote, they love their children very much and want to keep the family together, unquote. Thomas also told an attorney that it was an isolated incident and that and that she didn't fear Johnson, according to DCF records. The couple was ordered to attend domestic violence support group, participate in counseling, including anger management classes, but their attendance was sporadic at best. At one point, the couple said they were attending the Yellow Umbrella Parenting Program, but DCF requested attendance records and learned that they actually never went. Um, And here's another culture corner for you. Welcome, Wendy and Beth here. Uh, The court ordered uh, class which uh, they're not always free. Child care is not always available. And you, you might have to take time off work. You know, what if you don't have reliable transportation to get to these classes when they're available? And so t- citations and court orders that say, you know, they're meant to thwart crime or correct or prevent future bad behavior oftentimes end up punishing people uh, for just being in poverty. And right. the cycle continues. They really need to uh, work with people. Exactly. Exactly. Um, just make me president of the United States. Come here. Are you listening? (laughs) Yeah, they got to work with people to, you know, make sure that they can get to these classes and they have transportation and Mm -hmm. childcare and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Investigators watched the children in the home and said they, quote, appear bonded to their parents, unquote. Pebbles had just received an award for outstanding reading in her kindergarten class, oh. and all of the children seemed healthy. That's a, that makes me smile. Um, yeah. A few years later, in 2002, Thomas was arrested on a misdemeanor battery charge for striking Joe Johnson. The charge was later dropped. In 2007, Joe Johnson was in prison serving three years on drug charges. Uh, doing drugs. <laughs> um, so now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. In 2012, Joe Johnson was living in Titusville, Florida and not living with the family. Tanya was 33 and she and her children lived in a nice but modest working-class neighborhood in Port St. John, Florida. She was active in her church called The Real Church, located in Rockledge. Thomas was working as a human resources manager for Renco Electronics, although she had been given four raises since starting with the company in 2009 and was steadily climbing the ranks. Money was still tight. The three older children, Pebbles, Jax, and Jaslyn, attended Space Coast, Space Ghost, <laughs> Junior oh, there you Senior go. High School. <laughs> In Cocoa, Florida. And Joel was a sixth grader at Atlantis Elementary School. Pastor Jarvis Wash of the Real Church in Rockledge said Thomas talked about her kids all the time. She loved them. He described Pebbles as a genius and said that she scored in the top 10% on her SAT. And he said that all the kids were great kids. Others described the kids as fun and funny. Um, one friend of Pebbles said that she was very loving and caring and that she always had a smile. Uh, she was always in a good mood and didn't let anything affect her. And Joel loved playing football. I tried to find uh, more information about some of the interests of the other kids, but I, I had a hard time finding anything. Yeah. So, I'm yeah. glad you tried. I yeah. um I stopped looking at photos of yeah, it was the hard. victims. It was it was hard to see their their faces, their smiling yeah. faces yeah. in the photographs. Yeah. On April 8th, Easter Sunday, police were called to the house when Jax threw a bicycle through a window of the house. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> Thomas told deputies, quote, she is attempting to get him into different programs to help with his issues, unquote. Sounds like she's trying. Yep. The, the next day, she called police to report that her son had kicked and punched her repeatedly when she tried to wake him up for school, then ran out of the house. Jax was arrested on April 10th and charged with domestic violence. Now, Jax is the older boy, boy. 15, Yeah, he's right? like 15. Yeah, yep. okay. Jax spent at least two days in juvenile detention and had a court date scheduled for May 15th. Thomas did not pick up Jax from juvenile detention because she wanted to teach him a lesson. Uh, did your parents ever do anything like that to you? No, because I never <laughs> got into trouble like that. <laughs> Uh, I I was just wondering, I know um, my dad worked at juvenile detention. So, you know, he took us there, you know, played a prank, you know, look at what's in this cell and then goes away Close and closes the door. the door and leaves yeah. us in there. Um, but I've heard of other parents taking their kids to like group homes so they can see, oh, you don't, you don't like it at my house. You yeah, want to see how, yeah, this. come take yeah. a look at what happens when you, you know, don't mind your scared cues. straight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. So it um, sounds like she was desperate to try to try to teach her son something so that she could save him or protect yeah. him yeah, she, from getting I'm him in sure trouble. She was at the end of her rope. She didn't yeah. know what to do. Yeah. And I've never raised teenagers yet, Beth, but my understanding is it's very challenging. Yes. They're a pain <laughs> in the ass for sure. 
<laughs> well, stay tuned. Um, but um, so because she did not pick him up the following day, child welfare investigators visited the Thomas home to look into allegations of inadequate supervision of the children. An investigator for the Department of Children and Families spoke to Thomas and the children and determined that there were no signs that the children were in any distress. Each child was interviewed and they said that they felt safe in their home, but there were few details beyond nearly identical paragraphs with answers to the same set of questions under each child's name. The report indicated that the investigator also spoke with neighbors and school officials, and the children seemed fine. Neighbors later claimed that the Thomas boys were known to shoot BBs at a home across the street, and they had threatened to set it on fire, and that they were often up late at night setting off fireworks. They claimed that, quote, it had been an ongoing problem on our street with them, end quote, and the kids were described as delinquents or hoodlums, and sounds like that's something a disgruntled white neighbor might say. Yeah, that probably had a lot of white neighbors since, uh, I forget what the stats were, but it was like 80% white. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, another thing to consider is that when black and brown bodies are doing something, it appears, it seems to appear more menacing to the white gaze, to white people watching it. That's why black kids get suspended from school more often. Yeah. You know, um, and and again, you know... (laughs) calling the police on kids selling water like these kids are doing things that i've never done but i know kids do this yeah, kind of white, fireworks white kids do, white too. Kids do yeah. it all the time i see yeah. the mo- i seen animal house i seen <laughs> how you guys do so uh, but you know uh, again it's it's black it's dangerous it shouldn't be there so call the police right. or, or complain about it neighbors also described a history of public arguments among thomas and her children and police later claimed that neighbors often complained of hearing shouts and yells emanating from the house however none of this came up in the DCF report and their Hmm. teachers and the students who went to school with the kids painted a very different picture of the children as we described them earlier. Right. The investigator watched the children at home and wrote that they, quote, appear bonded to their parents, end quote, although it's unclear how much contact the family had with Joe Johnson. He was not living at the home, and the investigator wrote, Thomas, quote, does not have a relationship with a partner that is supportive of her ability to protect and nurture her children, end quote. That's such a weird sentence. It is. It's very clinical. Um, yeah. Also, I've, I've griped about this before, but when white systems um, descend upon black and brown family units, they, it's like they don't know what the, it's they're no longer. It's hard to see them as human beings like yourself, me, the right. DCFS worker. Um, and if you might not understand the nuance that might come with, you know, a black or a brown family, they're louder, maybe, um, you know, uh, I don't I don't know. But it just seems clinical, almost to the point of not understanding or trying to understand. Right, right. The investigator determined that Thomas was not verbally or mentally abusive to the children and seemed eager to find a mentor for her two sons. Thomas said her 15-year-old son, Jax, had anger issues and that the family had been going to counseling occasionally over the past six months. The investigator called to check in with Thomas on May 10th to see if she needed anything, but she said she didn't. And a supervisor signed off on the case on May 13th. Okay. Um, A classmate of Pebbles Johnson said the family, quote, 
had problems like everybody else, but nothing that drastic, end quote. Jarvis Wash, the pastor of the Real Church in Rockledge, described the Thomas family problems as, quote, normal stuff for families with teenagers. On Friday, May 11th, Thomas visited a food pantry and asked the minister there, Darius Tripp, to pray for her. Then she hugged him before leaving with her bags. The family attended church services on Sunday, May 13th, which was also Mother's Day. That's like the Super Bowl of church. Mother's Day, (laughs) Mother's Day, Christmas, and Easter. We call them CME Christians, the ones who just go on those three days. On those days. Yeah. (laughs) So on Monday, May 14th, Thomas renewed her health insurance and took a half day at work to take Pebbles to the doctor. Jax didn't go to school that day, and the next day he was to go to court on the domestic violence charge. So here is where uh, we're going to get into what happened. So uh, it might be disturbing for you guys. So just a heads up. Yes. On Tuesday, May 15th, at about 4.50 a.m., a neighbor heard gunshots. Joel, Jaslyn, and Pebbles fled their home in terror and began frantically knocking on the neighbor's door, yelling, Help us! Help us! Joel was covered in blood, and he told the neighbor he had been shot. Pebbles had been shot as well, but the neighbor only noticed that Joel was bleeding, as Pebbles was pacing around in the background. The recordings of the neighbor's 911 calls captured the scene as the kids tried desperately to get help. At first, the female caller tells dispatchers that one of the children shot his mother. She immediately immediately identifies the kids as African-American yep. for no reason whatsoever. Yep. Nope. Nope. And you, they, they repeat it. Like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't change. It doesn't, yeah, change. It doesn't magically people. change. Like, yes. What, what has yeah. that got to do with anything? <laughs> uh, be careful. Be careful. They're black. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's, that's yeah. what I'm, I think it means, but I don't know. Uh, then she also says that the cops had been to their house before again, unwarranted. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely unnecessary. Mm. Quote, I knew this was going to happen, you guys, unquote, the woman says. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. Mm. In a later call, she claims there were problems with the family, quote, since they moved in, unquote. Ooh, your racism is showing. showing. Um, So, okay. So, quote, get back. You're not coming in our house, the woman is heard saying. The boy's in our front yard getting a towel. He's got blood on his right side. The woman's husband later takes the phone and tells the dispatcher, quote, they tried to break in our front door to get in. I guess to try to get away from her. Whoever's got the gun, he says. So then he says, quote, so I grabbed my gun and ran outside and one's laying there bleeding at the front door. The dispatcher then asks where the bleeding child went and is told that he went back home. The man on the 911 call says he thinks the children went back home. Quote, I don't know who has the gun, so I'm not walking out there. I'm armed, but not going out there and putting myself in danger. Now there's more gunshots, the man says. Hey, whatever happened to the good guy with the gun story? Yeah. Right? What happened to that? Hey, uh, so Tanya Thomas uh, had called the children back at the house and she reportedly remained very calm when she called the children and they turned around and walked back to the house. And I just the image 
uh, is horrific in my mind. Yeah. Joel and Jaslyn went back inside the home, but Pebbles passed out in the yard and never made it back inside. Thomas shot Joel and Jaslyn again, killing them. She then smoked a cigarette. Responding deputies arrived at the house to find Pebbles wounded in the front yard, having been shot three times. Deputies pulled up to the yard in a patrol car, loaded her inside, and drove her to a waiting ambulance. She was declared dead at the scene by paramedics. Mm-hmm. Thomas was seen at the front door holding a gun, but she went back inside when she saw the officers. Deputy set up a perimeter, and a short time later, more gunfire was heard, prompting the SWAT team to go in through the back entrance. Once inside, they found the bodies of Tanya Thomas, her daughter, Jaslyn, and her two sons, Jax and Joel. Tanya Thomas used a Taurus 38 caliber revolver to shoot and kill her children. Within 36 minutes, the children were shot 18 times. Jax had been shot three times while still in his bed. The wound suggested that his mother had the gun pressed to his chest when she pulled the trigger. In the entry of the home, police found the body of Joel, who had been shot five times. Lying next to him was Jaslyn, who had been shot seven times. It is believe that Jax was the first to be shot. Pebbles likely collapsed when returning from the neighbors. Tanya Thomas was found on a couch, dead of a gunshot to her head. The gun still clenched in her hand. No suicide note was found in the home, but Thomas sent a text message around 3 a.m. to a male co-worker that said, quote, tell my mom what happened. I want to be cremated with my children, unquote. Unfortunately, he did not see the text until he woke up at 7 a.m. well after the incident occurred. The text would indicate that the murders were premeditated. 18 shots in 36 yeah. minutes. Yeah. That wraps up the timeline so you can unplug your ears. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Uh, now we're going to get into the investigation. So according to autopsy reports, Tanya Thomas had two times the legal limit of alcohol in her system when she shot and killed her four children and herself. She had a blood alcohol content of 0.16%, which is twice the legal limit to drive in Florida and equivalent to approximately 10 drinks. Officials said that such a high alcohol level would impair someone's judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Captain Obvious. Where would we be without you guys? And ability to process information and that it's not unusual for people who commit suicide or kill others and themselves to have drugs or alcohol in their system at the time. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, So the children appeared healthy and had no drugs in their system. According to the reports, the medical examiner found nothing unusual or out of the ordinary during the examinations except for Thomas's blood alcohol level. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. And hello, wait a minute, what's that? <laughs> There's no trial. Oh, <laughs> okay, silly ass. Now we're going to get into where are they now? What do you got, Beth? Brevard Public Schools sent grief counselors to the victim's schools. Friends of the four Florida children reacted with tears and stunned silence when they found out their classmates were dead. Mm-hmm. A friend of the children said there was a lot of crying when the news was announced on the school speakers. Yeah. Um, I just, I can not imagine, imagine. Yeah. um, cause this, this would be horrible. 
a horrible, huge ripple effect on the entire community. Yeah. Um, a memorial service was held for the family on Sunday, May 20th, and the funeral was May 21st at the Temple Baptist Church in Titusville. Just sad to see five caskets in a church, uh, one family member named Irene Garvin said. Quote, it's just sad for the whole family. There's nothing we can say or do. I mean, we just don't know where her mindset was, end quote. The child welfare investigator who visited them was extremely distraught and took several days of leave. The neighbors on the 911 call claimed that they received death threats for not letting the kids inside. They released a statement claiming that they did not refuse entry to the kids, despite the fact that you can clearly hear them refusing entry on the 911 call. They blamed the media, but uh, the 911 call speaks for itself. Yeah, bitch, are you dumb? We heard you. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) Patricia Pearson, author of When She Was Bad, How and Why Women Get Away with Murder, said mass killings with women as a perpetrator are rare. And when they do happen, they typically aren't committed with guns. According to James Allen Fox, a criminologist at Northeastern University, women make up about 5% of the ranks of mass killers. Mm. And most cases in which women kill their families, it involves young children, not teenagers, partly because young children are vulnerable and older children can run away. Fox said the circumstances in this case appear to be, quote, suicide by proxy, which is a family member takes the lives of her loved ones out of a warped sense of love before killing herself. So now we're going to get into our takes, our takeaways and what we think led to the events in um, in May 2012. What do you got, Beth? So um, I do not condone what this woman did, obviously. <laughs> right, right, right. right. 100%. <laughs> but, but I do feel for her. Um, she was just a teenager herself when she started having kids and mm-hmm. raising four children on your own and three of them teenagers that's a nightmare um hello yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when my kids were teenagers there were many times when i wanted to drive my car 90 miles per hour into a wall oh my god wow <laughs> bev <laughs> yeah it was hard <laughs> that's so vivid it's really like that oh no well i was a single mom you know, yeah, yeah, I was in the same situation she was. Yeah. So I, I didn't I didn't drive into a wall because you're glad uh, about it. Mm-hmm. My kids needed me and mm-hmm. I, I never, ever thought about killing them. But mm-hmm. I, I get the frustration and the despair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you're in that situation. Right. And it sounds to me like Thomas was having trouble with Jax, who mm-hmm. was acting out and getting in trouble. And mm-hmm. uh, she didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. And I understand the despair as a parent when your kid starts acting out as a teenager and you're afraid they're going to ruin their life. Maybe she felt like that. She probably Mm -hmm. felt helpless and depressed, Mm -hmm. like everything was going to go bad. And I've been there before, for sure. Yeah. Especially when my kids were teenagers. Yeah. And it seems like it's never going to end. And Mm. you really have no control over what your kid's going to do. You're afraid that all the time that you spent caring for and nurturing your child is wasted time because your kid's going to fuck it all up and have a terrible life. Oh, no. (laughs) Beth, you really are making this parenting thing sound very not great. I'm just explaining, you know, feelings that I had. And so I'm like empathizing with with maybe where her headspace was. And can I tell you, thank you 
for that. I really appreciate you being honest about your, like your truth, because yeah. it, it's, it's helpful. I thank you. Keep going. You're welcome. Give me more. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> so, so no parent wants that. It's what parent nightmares are made out of, you know, your mm-hmm. kid, you like just fucking up and, and everything going wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do have to say before I go on to all the parents out there, uh-huh. it gets better. <laughs> Okay. It gets better. You heard it here. Beth is one of is one of the wisest women I know besides Oprah and my mom. And uh if she says it, I'm gonna I, I it. mean I was there. Um I had you know, it was hard. I had all these feelings, but um today my life's great. So it, it gets yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so that's a relief. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. <laughs> So, as I said, you know, it's especially hard as a single parent because you have nobody to talk to about these problems. Right. Nobody to bounce ideas off of or bring you back to reality. You're just kind of in a bubble. Yeah. She had a church and she had a pastor. Um, She said she was taking the kids to counseling, but I don't know if she actually was because there was that incident earlier on where she said they were going to a parenting program and it turned out that they weren't. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if they were, um, but I think that she really did need a counselor. Um, Yeah. Pastors just don't cut it, in my opinion. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. They're not, uh, they're pastors. I guess they have some counseling experience, but they're not counselors. so yeah, I guess I guess they're they're not credentialed or trained right. as as counselors, but from um uh, you know, I some I I grew up in the church. My dad was a reverend uh and we've had I've said this before, the in the black community, that is where you get your mental health right. treatment. I so, understand that, but yeah. I don't I don't think it cuts it. Hey, I feel just my opinion. Hey, Beth. <laughs> thank you, Beth. Keep, yes. There's yes. A, there's a couple of problems with it. Um mm-hmm. the, the, you can't pray problems away. I mm-hmm. think a lot of a lot of it focuses on on God and praying yeah. and and mm-hmm. trying to pray your problems away. Um, mm-hmm. And then also your pastor is somebody you know, mm-hmm. and so you might be ashamed to Ooh. tell them things. Right, um, right. That you you would you would tell a counselor because they're not. You're your only friend. seeing the counselor yeah. in the counseling yeah, capacity, exactly. but the pastor you're seeing on Sunday, you're seeing right. them at the, you know, the food, the Bible study, you know, sick and shut in uh, visits. It, 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 it yeah. goes beyond just that sitting in a room on a couch and talking exactly. about how you feel. Yeah. yeah. So that's how I see it. Yeah. Um, and we've talked before about how people in the black community resist getting help with mental health from mm-hmm, uh, counselors mm-hmm. and stuff. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was probably some of that involved yeah. as well. Why she yeah. didn't get more help, I guess. Mm-hmm, and obviously mm-hmm. the alcohol didn't help. Um, she no. probably would not have gone through with it if she hadn't been drunk. But um, I don't know if she drank so she could go through with it or if she did it because she was drunk. And we'll never know. That's true. We, we never will. Yeah. Ugh. And yeah. finally, listening to the 911 tape was infuriating. So Yes, it was. Like, I read all the stories and I was like, okay, well, it doesn't sound that bad. Um, but then listening to the 911 tape, it was so clear, the bias. And, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. 
so painful, <laughs> painful how clear yeah. it was. Yeah. And it was different from, like I said, reading the news stories, the news reports, cherry picked the discussion. So, um, you know, the news is of racist. Of course they did. <laughs> what do we say every week? The Everybody. News is racist. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm the, not going to say allegedly anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm done. Allegedly, allegedly is going in the basura. <laughs> So, like we were talking about earlier, the lady immediately identifies the family as African American. Like, oh, mm. you know, there's a problem because yes. they're African American. Yes, and I says just... that there's problems since they moved in. Mm-hmm. And and she also said that none of the kids went to school except the youngest one, which clearly wasn't true. Right. So uh, it's just a bunch of bullshit, and mm-hmm. I, I, I don't. It's just awful. It, it, it made me so mad listening to that. It, yeah, me too. It, yeah, me too. And um, that was the first place I went was to because there weren't any podcasts about this or um, I didn't find uh, that. Anyway, the 911 call was my first source because there was a YouTube right. clip of it. And I was I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Right. I, um, I had the same reaction. I, yeah. I had read a lot mm-hmm. before I listened to the 911 tape and I, I was at reading it. Mm-hmm. I was not expecting what I heard. Interesting. You know, because yeah. it, it yeah. was so cleaned up in the mm-hmm. news reports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Yep. So I think having racist neighbors didn't help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> and, boy, oh boy. Uh, you know, if the neighbors had let the kids in, um, probably some of them would be alive today. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the news reports were also like, uh, nobody knows why the kids went back to the house. Well, they went back because nobody would help them and they were obeying their mother. So exactly. That's why. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Did the, the articles really said, I don't yes. know why the kids they went. They said nobody knows why. And then also, you know, I have a rule not to read comments on news stories, but every once in a while I'll catch one. Okay. Because I'm just like at the bottom of the story. Uh-huh. And uh, so people are like, why did those kids go back? And, you know, it's like, oh, shut oh up. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, th- that's that's a really uh, interesting point that those the the those Internet keyboard warriors right. <laughs> um, got on their high horses and, and, and critiqued the kids going back because they were children still. They yeah. had a mother um, right. and they did. They did the right thing by going for help and it wasn't available to them. So what right. I think so they were just were they resigned. To do? Yeah. Right. Like, resigned. And there were still other kids, other yeah. kids, other siblings. My siblings are in there too, you know? Yeah. Maybe they just felt uh, you know, I guess this is it, right? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't I don't know. And I think we'll we'll be speculating on this one till the cows come home. Right. But Beth, you have just assaulted me with your hot <laughs> ass takes. I'm dead. My ghost is talking now. This is Wendy from beyond. Um, everything you said, I agree with. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, the, the, the mental health thing. The one thing I did want to distinguish is, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a different America for, for white. Teenagers who do, um, you know, teenage regular regular stuff, and black teenagers who do those same things. And uh, I know you said you you had 
your teenagers and it was stressful and just like, oh my God, <laughs> what'd you say you want to run into a wall? I, I love that visual. <laughs> um, and you want to protect your kids, right, from ruining their life. But I, right. I just to take it a step further for a black or brown mother, you don't want your kid to lose their life. Right. And um, I sort of live in this perpetual state of what if the wrong person thinks that my child, because of the color of their skin, is dangerous yeah. when they're just doing something regular? Um, something a white kid would be doing, yeah. Yeah. Where's that ambient? Because <laughs> I need to sleep and relax. Uh, So, yeah, I agree with you. All those things, single parenting, challenging. um, And it sounded like she was trying, right? Yeah, she was trying, but just at the end of a rope. And if uh, it was premeditated, it was premeditated that day. Because the day before, she took pebbles to the doctor. She uh-huh. she renewed her health insurance. So she was mm-hmm. not planning this like for days or anything like that. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, that's that's another thing. Is all this investigation and stuff into her parenting, into her doing her best, probably didn't help with her stress level either. Right. right? Um, because... Uh, again, DCF, DCF comes in and, you know, meddles and, and sees you being a, a black single parent and might um, hold you to some other standard that is just not attainable for you as a single black mother um, or poor person or, right. you know what I mean? It so, has to be humiliating. Humiliating, additional stress, not helpful. Right. Um, I, I think uh, DCFS or child services, whatever it's called in in your state, I think um, is part of a white supremacist system. And again, they come into these homes and enforce sanctions, parenting classes, and and things like that that are 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 difficult um, for everybody to comply with for numerous reasons. Right. Um, and um, I again, she she tried. To get help and it just wasn't enough. Um, the other thing was struck me. Well, we've we've talked about the neighbors, how they they saw the, these black kids. You know, I knew this was going to happen. Or they right. were always they, they were, were these, all, ever since people, they moved in. Their problems. They we saw they were their, black, so there, <laughs> we knew there was going to be problems. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I this this was a really interesting case, and it's kind of hitting me different because of sort of where we are today especially with that Derek Chauvin right. um, verdict and stuff. Um, and just feel, I feel so bad for the children and yeah. their friends and community and yeah. um, lives lost that young is um, always uh, really devastating sad. and hard to talk about. So right. that's it for the story in our takes. Check our sources if you want to learn more or listen to the episode again. I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> Four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual.
coming up in this series. And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. So now we're going to get into (laughs) how not to get murdered. So... If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So we have been getting how not to get murder tips from listeners. And I am trying not to lose track and keep them coming. (laughs) But this one is from one of our patrons, uh, Hannah. uh, Hannah, yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Um, (laughs) So she sent a link to Hidden Weapons. Uh, If you go to www.karatemart.com forward slash Hidden (laughs) Weapons, Uh, there's nothing, you know, it's, it's nothing big. It's not fancy, but it does the job. Uh, Hey, are you interested in a lady's pink comb? That's also a knife for less than $7. How about a hidden cigarette? That's also a knife for less than $4. A stun gun keychain, maybe for less than $20. These people aren't sponsors, but man, I am going to buy uh, a, st- a, a stun gun pen for $25. Hidden lipstick knife? Yes, please. Stun gun flashlight? Wow. Put that in the bag right now. <laughs> and they have hidden knives in necklaces and Whoa. belts. And my absolute favorite concealed umbrella sword for $50. (laughs) This is amazing. I'm particularly interested in the jewelry. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a date or so. I don't know, just an extra layer of protection. Uh, And I think it could, uh, anybody could, you know, use one of these items, you know, I think to protect yourself. And uh, just check out the website, karatemart.com. Thank you, Hannah, for the tip. I also... (laughs) Oh, man, I spent too much time on that website. My card is full. <laughs> anyway, I also wanted to shout out Suicide Prevention Hotline. Um, I only have the phone number for the one in the United States, but it's 800-273-8255. Um, don't suffer in silence. And uh, that's that's all I got for tips this week. Well, thank you. You bet. So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by any marginalized or othered groups or any true crime goodies. Um, so I just wanted to shout out on Audible. It is, a, uh, I believe it is free. It's called We've Got Answers with Charlemagne the God and James Altucher. He's a white guy. Okay. Um, and uh, it's questions people have about black america 
and nothing is off limits. And questions, <laughs> questions that might, I can't think of an example, but I have been really enjoying it. It's only about, it's like 10 to 12 hours of listening. So you, it's like an audio book, right? right, right. Um, but it's interviews of, it's these questions that white people submitted um, over a period of time. And um, the the white guy, James Altucher, is asking the questions okay. uh, on behalf of everybody else to these experts. And the experts um, candidly give answers based on their experience or education. Um, and uh, it's just nothing's off limits. It's a place we can all like learn about other people. And I, I, I'm, I wishing that there was more of these, uh, we've got answers for not just black people, but what about LGBTQ? Yeah. What about like, you know, there's a lot of people who are afraid to even open their mouths, start any conversation yeah. or try because of right. fear, yes. right? You don't want to say the wrong thing. And um, this is one of those ways that you can sort of peek in and get, get a little bit of knowledge. So you, you can exercise that be better human muscle. Um, for the next time you're in a conversation. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to yeah. check that out. Yeah, it's cool. What do you got? So I wanted to shout out uh, the Margaret Cho podcast. Oh, I love her. Yeah. Ooh, since I was a little girl. Yeah, me too. Well, not a little girl, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> but ever since I was aware of her. <laughs> yeah, a non-white girl on public, not public, a mainstream TV. Like she had a sitcom. Yeah. And she had an immigrant family and uh, she wasn't, you know, super thin like all the other white girls on TV. It was just amazing. She's one of my heroes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. She's she's pretty awesome. Didn't know she had a podcast. What about it? I Tell didn't me. either until I, I don't even know how I stumbled across it, but I did. And cool. um, so this is the description for uh, season two of the Margaret Cho podcast. Okay. It says, with anti-Asian hate crimes at record numbers, season two of the Margaret Cho, Margaret examines the historical crimes that laid the groundwork for this recent onslaught of violence. The 1871 Whoa. Chinatown massacre, the fortune teller murders, the 2007 Virginia Tech massacre. Margaret talks with Asian comedians, authors, journalists, podcasters, as well as the organizations and people working to stop Asian hate. And uh, I've listened to several of the episodes and they're really, really good. <gasps> My mouth is so agape at the moment. <laughs> I am so excited. Mouth watering. I, I am. I know there's another part I'm supposed to stay, but let me just subscribe to this real fast. Okay, <laughs> the Margaret Cho podcast. Wow, I'm excited. Thank you. You're so welcome. So those shout-outs are We've Got Answers with Charlemagne the God on Audible and the Margaret Cho podcast. Um, well, this has been fun, Beth. Yeah. Where can the people find us until next time? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. So true. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.